Welcome to the Water People Podcast, where we talk story with some of the most adept water folk on the planet. I'm your host, Lauren Hill, joined by my partner, Dave Rastovich. Water People is a place to acknowledge and share the aquatic experiences that shape who we become back on land. This season is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the Bundjalung Nation, the traditional custodians of the land and waters where we work and play, who have cared for this sea country for tens of thousands of years. Respect and gratitude to all First Nations people, including elders past, present, and emerging. Today we're in conversation with adventurer, marine scientist, and world record holder Annie Ford. Annie worked for nearly a decade as a marine environmental consultant, notably as a marine fauna observer aboard seismic blasting vessels for the oil and gas industry. She spent time surfing and sailing around the world, including multiple expeditions to Antarctica. Today, Annie's the National Campaign Manager for the Surfrider Foundation Australia, where she's currently working to halt the largest marine seismic blasting project ever proposed. It's slated to take place off the coast of her home island of Tasmania and will emit some of the loudest human-made noises ever created to the detriment of an entire ecosystem. We caught up with Annie as she completed a 4,000-kilometer bike ride, that's about 2,500 miles, to talk about endurance, optimism, changing careers, and her entwined commitment to kindness, climate action, and adventure. And just a quick note before we dive in, you can go into the draw to win a prize pack from our podcast partners by signing up to the Water People newsletter, the link is in the show notes here, or you can leave the podcast a review wherever you listen. Two ways to enter, everyone who leaves a review or signs up for the newsletter will go into the draw to win some sweet gear. We'll choose the winners early in Water People's sixth season. Coming out of spring into summer, there has been a wonderful wave of events put on by Patagonia and Indigenous groups working to protect people and place and Surfrider Foundation. It seems like in the last month or so, there's been a lot of opportunity for people to come together and be lit up by each other's stories and also well-informed about any threat to their way of life in an area, their way of making a living or cultural continuation. Just a very vibrant time. And we had one of those key people, especially in the Surfrider family, Annie, come through on her bike and blow our minds. Oh, I was so (laughs) inspired by Annie. She just made me want to rethink efficiency and the way we organize adulthood in terms of, I think about this a lot, having a young child, actually also having a puppy. I watched our six-month-old puppy, Moondoggy, the way she moves, the way she frolics without any concern for efficiency of movement. You know, she like does these bouncing 
pounces and jumps over our other dog, Yogi, with no concern for getting from A to B. And I'm always really inspired by that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know how you do that when you're a kid? You're not thinking about, oh, and then I need to get to the shop. So I'm going to drive from here to there. And the most efficient way is to take this path. And, you know, our minds become dominated by moving with efficiency and getting shit done. And Annie came into our lives and just exploded that idea in adulthood And she decided, as you'll hear more about soon, that instead of jumping on a plane to fly from destination to destination on this tour with the Surfrider Foundation, she was going to ride her bike and ended up riding 4,000 kilometers, enjoying very much and also not enjoying the ride at times. But for better or worse, she is committed to adventure and the lived experience. Mm. And I wanted to ask you about that, Dave. Can you tell us a story about a time when firsthand experience changed something inside of you? Thank you for asking. Yeah, the lived experience. As someone who didn't really finish school and didn't go to university or anything along the lines of expanding my grey matter, uh, I really felt that it was up to me at an early age to just accrue life experiences and a couple of years into being a traveling surfer that wasn't following competitions and things I was in my early 20s I started to see that everywhere I was going there were really serious problems in places you'd go back to parts of Indonesia one year after another and see that it was harder and harder for people to catch fish and feed their families or you could no longer surf in front of that river mouth because it was so toxic same in Japan same in Europe same in America and in parts of Australia certainly in New Zealand. And I got to a bit of a point where I was like, what can I do about this? I haven't gone to university. I don't have any academic skills to call on. I'm just a surf rat. What can I do? And at that point in our area on the North Coast, through great friend Howie Cook, lifelong artist and activist. We have to have him on soon. This is the will. second time we this really season do. you and, mentioned Yeah. Him. And so Howie was like, oh, hey, Dave, I've got Captain Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society coming through. I'm feeding him up and his crew my place tomorrow and um, you should meet him. And I just thought, oh, I should actually interview him and because I was aware of the group's work and how much of an absolute legend and deeply experienced man Paul Watson was. And so I did. I organized to interview him. The next day, he came over to my place with Howie. And right before I sat down to speak with Captain Paul and basically ask him, like, what should I do? What the hell can I do with my skill set? How can I be valuable and assist your work or do things like that? I got a phone call from Steve Barilotti, who was the editor at large of Surfer magazine at the time. And Barlow said, Dave, how you going? What are you up to? I just want to check in, see what you got going on. What are you doing anytime soon? And I said that I was about to interview Captain Paul and I'll call Barlow back tomorrow and I'll probably have a plan, hopefully have a plan. And so I sat down with Captain Paul and basically he just fired me up, fired me up to just get out there and really experience issues firsthand. He was speaking from experience given that he had been on the ice flows in the Arctic Circle, standing between men with massive clubs and beautiful little white fur seals and stopping them from killing those animals. He had been (laughs) between a gun and an animal 
many, many times in his life. And those experiences were fuel for him. They were motivators that would never leave him. And so he basically told me to do the same and to enlist the community that I was a part of. And so that's what I did. I thought, okay, wherever I can do that, I will do it. And so I jumped on with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society's ship. I can't remember if it was the Farley Moat or the Steve Irwin, but they basically took one of their vessels from Australia all the way across the Pacific and were stopping at the Galapagos Islands to intervene with poachers who were shark finning in the marine sanctuary there. And that experience was deeply impactful. That was something I'll never, ever forget, that experience of looking at animals entangled in miles and miles of long line baited lines and then I wanted to go to Japan and I wanted to go to the site of Taiji Cove and I wanted to firsthand experience culturally what the scenario was was this a cultural practice accepted by everyone or were these fishermen rogues that had splintered off from their traditional honorable ways of feeding their villages and their communities were they now just industrialized fishermen who were carrying out these inhumane drives and kills? And so that experience was a, d- a direct experience for me that I can never, ever forget. And there's been many, many more in my life that are along those lines where, where safely I have been able to go to the center of an issue or the center of a opportunity like that, that it is just unforgettable and it is like, I don't know if this is a word, but undiminishing. <laughs> it doesn't diminish that potency of that experience and also afforded me an opportunity to be a voice within the discussion about those issues, to be able to sit with someone who's perhaps defending an industrialized inhumane practice and ask them, well, have you been there? Have you heard the sound these animals make when they're treated that way? Have you smelt mineral-rich iron-scented blood in the water? Have you seen the magnitude of shark finning practices? And a lot of times the people who are on the other side of that debate will answer no. And so you've got a really powerful position there, even though you might not be an academic or someone who walks in the bureaucratic world very well. You've got a voice. And that was what I really loved with Annie, that she is someone who has the academics, actually, And she went onto the ships, onto the vessel that is seismic blasting, deploying a new technology that is incredibly violent, incredibly destructive, and incredibly single-minded for the benefit of one corporation. At the detriment detriment of of an entire ecosystem. Ecosystems, fishing industries, communities. Mm -hmm. And she lived it. And she got off that vessel and got on her bike and has not looked back. And so she has a powerful voice and a wonderful voice, a happy, buoyant. You can see the purpose in her eyes. You can feel that vibrant energy in her. This is someone who is hearing all of the discussions about climate change, hearing the discussions about the destruction of communities and in other industries, and is not overwhelmed by them and sitting in a place of overwhelm without action, she is lit up and is acting on that feeling. And don't you think you could feel it? We were sitting here at this table and you could just feel 
that, yeah, her physical body is being put through it. She's 4,000 Ks in, about to have another big adventure, but her spirit is lit up and buoyant, and isn't that what we all want? Annie, thank you so much for being here. (laughs) We always begin these conversations in the same place by asking about a time or experience after which you were never the same. Would you please share a story like that with us? What a wonderful, profound question and so many ways to move through that. I think it begins for me as a child and the first time I was on a sailing boat and you know where, how fear is contagious and this storm brewed and we were told to go inside, me and my friends, on this surfing trip and the adults started to get quite stressed and the waves were coming over the boat and we were bunkering down and getting pretty scared then realizing like this is actually pretty fun getting thrown around <laughs> and, and then changing that narrative from this isn't scary this is a great time and then you know you try to stand up and surf in the like little cockpit down there and I think that was a really impactful moment in the importance of the story you tell yourself mm. and how you can control that and how something that can be fearful or challenging or a lot of these experiences you don't have control over but it's the meaning you bring to it that has had such a profound ripple effect through life and later in life going through things like vipassana where you learnt how to do that with so much more control and intention And so when you get to this kind of stage in life where you want to bring purpose and impact to your life, but there's things like fear of judgment, there's things like fear of opposition and putting yourself out there, as long as the story that you tell yourself and the relationship you have with yourself and the experience is grounded in joy, Mm. gosh, Mm. and time and time again out here, that's been my experience and reminding to come back to that. It can be an absolute nightmare sometimes or it can be an adventure. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah, sailing, geez whiz, and being in the ocean Mm. in so many ways can offer a lesson like that that we bring back to our earthly life and, and also carry that with us through the decades and different periods in our life. Can you give us some examples of where you've applied that? Oof, so many. Uh, probably the biggest one, the first big sail I did across from the Caribbean into the Pacific. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, far from Tassie. Yeah, far, far. So I bought a yacht in the Caribbean and the plan was to sail back to Australia but got distracted with other opportunities and sold it in Tahiti. But on the sail across the Caribbean, we hit this three-day storm and with storms you cannot switch them off Mm. so sailing is the best teacher of patience and acceptance because you can't escape you can't teleport and I think carrying that lesson forward of it is what it is and you can either look at the waves or you can you know go downstairs and you know chill out and read a book and (laughs) do your best to, to get through the next you know 72 hours of getting thrown around and hoping and praying your boat survives the storm. There's a few moments out there, one in Antarctica as well, where 
having to go outside and I've lost feeling in my fingers from a, one of those experiences. Just um, Still to right now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Just the temperatures and if things go wrong. I, I still remember what, looking out at um, this this canal entrance, the Beagle Canal um, down down south, and if we didn't make it there within the next three hours, we were about to get nailed with, I think it was 60 to 70 knots of wind and we'd have to go back out to sea. So there was no, wow, like, safe mm. safe anchorage until mm. you get deep inside. And having to, like, rip the sails and some very, very close calls, it's a phenomenal teacher mm. and you don't have control to make it out of a few of those experiences. I remember thinking every grey hair and every wrinkle I get, I will be forever grateful for, like mm. age is a privilege. Mm. And mm. some of those experiences certainly wow. thought it was the, the end. <laughs> what were you doing sailing near to Antarctica? <laughs> uh, I was a Antarctic scientist on board uh, expedition yachts. So we, we took tourists on expeditions around the Antarctic Peninsula and operated as a watercraft operator. So, you know, you go and show them penguins and go lasso icebergs for the GNTs. Wow. It was wild. Wow. It's wild that that was a phase of life for a few years. And a few uh, years, wow. And yeah. were you leaving from the bottom of Australia or from South America? South America. Yeah. So a couple of seasons over there. Wow. And then I really like the warm weather as well. So yeah. <laughs> went back to the... Yeah, that's not the right place. Yeah. That <laughs> bit of both, bit of both. <laughs> Absolutely phenomenal place on earth though. And seeing those environments with your own eyes and feeling them and the contrast you can get on a single planet. Oh, how can you not mm. do everything in your power to take care of that? Mm. Uh, it's a wonderful opportunity if you ever get the chance. Mm. Make sure you experience wow. that. <laughs> Speaking of doing everything you can to protect the planet, you've just cycled 4,000 kilometres. I'd love to begin there again, please. Why? <laughs> Why and for what purpose? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Bike riding is phenomenal. Like I've, I've always... Oh, not always. I've only picked up a bike in the last five years. So wow. when and when you do, you realise there's so many directions you can take it. I entered the mountain biking world and decided to mountain bike through New Zealand. And I didn't know how long it would take because I was just going to, instead of flying the length of New Zealand, I was like, oh, I'll just ride it. And picked up my surfboard as well because I didn't know how long it had taken. I thought I'd miss surfing. So I towed my surfboard behind my mountain bike for the tip of New Zealand mm. and surfed and mountain biked along the way. But that experience changed how I want to travel. And the immersive experience of riding and smelling and hearing and meeting people in cafes, it's there's no better way. And that slow travel mm. where we've, we seem to be in a rush everywhere. But I've took that same mentality to this current adventure, which is uh, I'm now with Surfrider Foundation Australia, and we've just made a documentary film about seismic blasting in our southern seas and raising awareness about what seismic blasting is. And to tour that film along Tasmania and the east coast of Australia just presented this wonderful opportunity to jump back on the bike and I begged and pleaded with a surf rider foundation crew to, hey, guys, rather than me flying or driving between each event, could I ride it and hopefully generate a bit of momentum with that 
with the ride and I'll do like daily updates and try my best to do the, like the hard sell, which I'm terrible at, <laughs> self-promotion. <laughs> um, and and they, they said, yes, they 100% support and get behind me and what do I need and how can they help and what kind of workplace does that um, <laughs> to let, let you just have free reign and support and kindness the mm. whole way through. So mm. between each each screening location, I've been riding my remarkable bike and, God, you can never plan for what's to come. Mm. It is a wild world out there, but Australia and the diversity of landscapes and experiences and people and cultures and cities and regional areas. I just had the privilege of going from the southernmost point of Australia to the easternmost point of Australia via Noosa. (laughs) (laughs) And the experiences that relate to care of these landscapes. I feel so connected to Australia right now and what I got to see out there. It just is so moving. Mm. Mm. And the people, like people were leaving me snacks along the way mm. that, and they knew I was about to come through their town and they put a little sign up like snacks for Annie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was so, inc- <laughs> so incredible. And by by this stage with the awareness raised of the, of the ride, people were about 50 offers in Byron of do you need accommodation? Do you need a car? Do you need a surfboard? Do you need a mountain bike? Do you mm. need a tour guide? People are phenomenal and gravitational (laughs) and the opportunities that have come from this crazy idea. Like the first few days, like what have I done? What have I signed up (laughs) for? It really is crazy because, not crazy, but wonderfully crazy because when you think about a film tour (laughs) or something of this nature, you're usually planning in terms of efficiency. Mm-hmm. How many places can we get to? How quickly? How many people can we, can we get through the door to transmit this important and meaningful message? And you just flip that on its head. It's, <laughs> and I love that. I love that it worked. It was such a roll of the dice and the faith that the team had in me because mm-hmm. fortunately we also had, you know, people that helped along with the tour. We have an amazing tour manager manager Kai and Drew McPherson with my campaign director, they they just picked up the limitation of capacity that I, you know, injected with the choice to ride. And some of those days I was pretty tired pulling mm. in and, mm. you know, but we had a work meeting and I committed to make sure that work didn't suffer and the tour didn't suffer because of the uh, shift in allocation of my energy. Mm. But Thankfully, media outlets started to pull out of nowhere and fortunately we've got an amazing PR company that has helped along the ride and they just, oh, they're everywhere I went, it was interview after interview after interview and then meetings and studio, like live studio events, shaking with nerves because I'm not a public speaker. (laughs) Um, But learning on the job Mm. and learning out there and it's so easy to put that, like that brick of fear and ego well down the building blocks like and the purpose Mm. is is the leader and that's so easy when you live and breathe and wholeheartedly care about an issue like seismic Mm. blasting to just everything else falls away you fall away it's bigger than you and that's out there on the ride when you know you've got (laughs) there was like a a leg of 700 kilometers in three days 
through headwinds and heat from Melbourne to Canberra. And when you're out there and your hands are oh, so painful and your bum is like, oh, yeah, your bum oh my on God, a you have no idea. Do you have a really comfortable one and does it not even matter it, after a while? It doesn't they matter always, how yeah. comfortable it is <laughs> after fo- like after the first day, like 250Ks in, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, this is going to be excruciating and there's no way you can sit and I've tried every possible way. Yeah. And it's and again, that acceptance, like you can't do anything about it unless you want to jump and the, yeah. Yeah. there was no option. I was, I was seeing it through. Yeah. And you can do anything for that amount of time if you really put your mind to it. But just that grind and also your body just – once there's acceptance of this is going to be hard, you can almost like it's okay mm. Mm. and as part of it and it almost like you go through those phases and barriers and then it disappears for a while and it pops up again and the overwhelming barriers broken through of mm. what you can do with your body and your mind while in an amazing environment and people are coming out from nowhere to support you because they're following along and mm. and to think how that might have inspired even one person to do something or adventure or bring purpose to their life or lifestyle, mm. that's worth it. And mm. to think what, like, people have been saying in the shift of lifestyle or that they've now written to their MP or stood up for this topic as well like phew, that it makes it, mm. it that's it, it's easy like mm. you, your body heals yeah uh, except my fingers maybe your fingers and your bum will be, they'll be hanging out somewhere with, with <laughs> sensation but forevermore you won't be, be feeling those things <laughs> it's just what you go through though when you put through when mm. you when you have like a a goal like yours, like you said, the body heals and adapts, and I think that experience mm. too of adaptation is something really interesting because we're we're talking about that on a large scale mm. right now too. The adaptation of our current modern culture is a crucial aspect of how we are going to right certain mm. wrongs and heal certain illnesses, both personally, politically publicly and so when you're writing are all these things swirling around in your head mm. are you listening do you have your headphones on are you listening to stuff or are you writing without that kind of thing mm. like what's the conversation in your head mm. when you are in the trenches like that when you're back in that little cabin in the boat as an eight-year-old getting tossed around and you could either choose to freak out mm. or to front up mm. I remember 10 years ago and I saw so much trash in the ocean. I genuinely said to the person I was sailing with, the world is stuffed, we might as well have fun. Mm. I cannot believe that came out of my mouth ever. But if at any point we threw in the towel and gave up, like we could have done that at any point in history, but us humans are so phenomenally solutions-oriented. And while out there and you've got trucks and cars and you see what's traveling across the country in terms of shipping or mm. Mm. or getting carried from city to city and the like the allocation of energy resources to make that happen and here you are having the time of your life on your little bike and ch- like pushing it 
to make it happen. Like it's not an easy thing to do and some days are really hard to get out of bed and see that next 100, 200, 300 kilometres through in the day. Mm. You, you can't not question what are we doing when we know better. We have phenomenal research in this space. We know that we are on a trajectory that is unacceptable if we value our current lifestyle mm. on this planet mm. and where we live and what we can consume and how we can live our lives. If we value that, we have a responsibility to do something about it. And there are solutions at hand right now, whether that is as simple as jumping on your bike, whether that is what you consume, whether that is just having a conversation about what you care, but then taking that emotion and doing something about it is the next step. And it's not, it's just whatever your capacity is, and we all have different capacities, fortunately, like this idea, I had the support to, to see it through, but it feels good to do something about the remarkable injustices that are happening despite knowledge of those impacts. Mm. To then get active, you find your people, mm. you find your community, mm. You crucial, right? Oh, to have that like-mindedness. Essential, essential. Mm. And I've never felt like I've belonged more. Mm. And no one out is out there riding next to me. Like that, I'm literally the only person I met riding a distance like that. I know it's not the easiest option to do, but when you start living in alignment with your actions and values, it's profoundly moving for others to have that bar in place and then to reflect on what what we can do as individuals and it's literally the little choices every day and there's so many ways to do that how did you get to this place the whispers are that you used to work in the oil and gas industry so i was (laughs) so curious to find out how you made that transition and why was there a turning point a particular moment where you could no longer tell yourself a story to work in that industry? Great question. And like I mentioned, I can't believe I ever had the mentality of dismissal, like, oh, it's already it's already damaged. There's nothing I can do as a human, just mm-hmm. one person. And while offshore, li- working in the offshore oil and gas industry, on these seismic vessels as a marine fauna observer, I went out there to protect the whales. Mm. You know, I was out there to, to stop the impacts and to make sure that they weren't impacted and I really believed that I was part of the solution and that I could make change from within that industry. And then I started to scratch the surface and do my own research and realising that narrative that I'd been told out there of, oh, this this doesn't impact marine species. There's no evidence to show that there's any impacts. And I just learned that there had been no research done mm. and what had been done was... So they actually weren't wrong. They weren't lying. No, no, no. no. Like there hadn't <laughs> been any impact shown because they hadn't done the research mm. and the research that had been done almost entirely had been funded by the fossil fuel industry and the lobby groups. So the research was structured and designed in a way to tell a story. And once you can see, you can't unsee I, I had these conversations in the offshore industry, starting to question the people alongside me. They're like, oh, it's, we're not the problem. 
it's the consumers. We're just providing the resource. They mm. they want it. And I remember talking to my phenomenal friend, Jack O'Hare, and he said, what if everyone said no? And my excuse out there at that time was if I don't do it, someone else will do it and probably do a worse job. They won't care as much. And he was like, what if every marine biologist said no, they couldn't go ahead? I was like, what a great way of thinking. And so I said no. And I told them why I wasn't going to accept the opportunities and contracts anymore. And I started making a bit of noise about it um, just on my own social media platforms and hey guys that this is happening but no one knew what seismic blasting was no one when was this Annie this was uh gosh about five years ago now I decided to stop working and then making like which is a huge personal sacrifice and change in terms of probably Mm. having a comfortable income yeah um that was probably a major transition for you and friends and especially the defensiveness that comes with stepping out and people Mm. thinking you're attacking them. Mm. And I understand that there's different value systems and some people need to put food on the table and need that secure income or their money is the highest value. Whereas for me, I was soon learning that it wasn't mine and without a clean water and clean air and diverse, healthy ecosystems, none of it matters mm. like we we depend on the environment that we have the privilege to call home this remarkable planet and so taking that step away surfrider heard about me doing my little you know I'd step up to the bat and then I wouldn't really swing I'd be like and it's bad it's not very good and please <laughs> like I was so scared to to I was operating in this system of what's going to get me liked. Yeah. And hmm. and I didn't want to rock the boat. I was like, I remember being such a people pleaser. <laughs> uh, and to to go against the grain was so uncomfortable after mm. not being mm. a controversial person or avoiding conflict at any opportunity. And so that decision and then the actions, fortunately I had some amazing people kind of take me under the wing and and listen and then help me raise that voice and this particular seismic blasting proposal was dropped a couple of years ago off the Tasmanian coastline and it stretches along the Victorian coastline to the South Australian border. It's the biggest seismic blasting proposal in history ever. Mm. And I had imposter syndrome when I went up to speak about this. Like, I'm, how, how could I possibly influence a choice on this? But who better after experience the industry, understanding the language, knowing what, how to do research and how to analyse the science and then, yeah, quite unwillingly speaking about it <laughs> because I, <laughs> I'm getting better. <laughs> um, I realised how valuable your voice is mm-hmm. and that one person can genuinely change the trajectory of an entire country but it starts with one and if not you then who and if not now then when like it's mm. I incredibly like cliche but I've genuinely experienced that and how empowering it is to take that courage and say what you believe and then realizing that there is a 
mass of people that will jump on board to reason mm. and as they just need to know. And I have every faith in humanity that people are inherently good, but they need the information to make an informed decision. And what we are fighting out there is billions of dollars of lobbying to the government and media. That And we are just a, for example, Surfrider Foundation, we're tiny. There's 3.5 of us at the national level trying mm. to spread this mm. campaign. Thank God we've got a small army of volunteers <laughs> because <laughs> it's watching us move the pin. And when people hear about what seismic blasting is, they are shocked and mortified that this is happening. I think this is a really good time to actually go into an audio experience for Ooh. our listeners. We're going to play a little bit of whale song and then we'll let you hear what the seismic blasts sound like if you were underwater. So everyone who just listened to that has access to that file. So if you want to reach out to us and play that at your school where you have marine studies as a subject, which I did, it was about the only thing I paid attention to in school, <laughs> and you're a teacher or you're a student, request that you play this in your school. If you have any kind of gathering happening where presenting the nature of this violent technology to your fellow earthling and those of us especially along these coastlines that will be directly impacted by that kind of technology please do so just reach out and we'll flick it to you and um and make sure that that proliferates and i think annie when you're talking about this the the experience of being on the boat you speak to this in the southern blast film which is a great short film i'm sure people have access to that pretty soon too, mm -hmm. as another tool to rally each other. When you're on film and we see you speaking about being on the boat and your role watching for whales, watching for wildlife that would be impacted by this technology, and then a moment for you where I guess what I'm interested in is that feeling of outrage and concern and real perhaps frustration at that experience how did you then transform that into this effervescent person we have sitting on the other side of the table where you can cope with that? Because I think that's a really important thing in these times right now is coping with looking at these situations face to face and really paying attention to them, though not sinking, mm. feeling how, how you can swim through these sort of situations. So how are you doing that? How did you do it then and how do you keep doing it? It's so overwhelming to be confronted with the enormity of some of these issues. It feels like you're moving a mountain uphill. But goodness me, getting active is 
the cure, without a doubt. Mm. And through that action and the energy of the people that I am surrounded by, people that are not apathetic, they are doing something about it. And with that comes this inherent optimism. Like I am shamelessly optimistic that we can tackle this because I've seen, we've seen it. We've seen these proposals be knocked over. We saw it with Fight for the Bite. We're seeing it with Pepper 11 at the moment. Mm. People power is a real thing and we have the fortune of living in a democracy where your voice matters by this very structure, but it doesn't work unless you use it. And I understand that there is a lot of hope lost in these current political systems and it does feel overwhelming and often quite heavy and and depressing but there is no better feeling like i've just had the time of my life pairing everything i love doing i get to surf mountain but will ride and deliver a message and i could have just turned my back on that and gone traveling or stayed in the industry there's something karmic about what we do with our time and i did not feel good out there facilitating seismic blasting mm. but my gosh i would never expected to sit on this podcast and be talking about this issue that i feel deeply about and i cannot encourage everyone more if you care about something and it doesn't have if this doesn't speak to you that's okay we all have our own part to play but listen to what angers you or what inspires you and it doesn't just fall in your lap it comes from that being active and showing up without showing up you it will literally you, it's like surface dwelling you know there's no deep dives this mm. this is such an important message Annie you're really speaking to the heart of how we make meaningful lives you listen to those peaks of interest to follow the threads of curiosity and that can deliver us to these peak moments that you're talking about before you mentioned being supported by this great community but you've also you are also supported by the science mm -hmm. it's so different than a few years ago when you're speaking about there not being definitive science about the impacts of seismic mm -hmm. testing can you talk us through the science where it is now and the the real impacts on marine species absolutely it's so encouraging knowing we're on the right side of history like this is a finite resource. Mm. It's the most dangerous experiment ever to continue to drill and extract and burn these fossil fuels. This particular proposal is searching for gas. So gas is actually methane. What's the proposal called? Yeah, it's a it's called a seismic survey and the proposal proponent is TGS, a Norwegian company, and Schlumberger or SLB, they've recently renamed, um, and they're an Australian company. And they're proposing to seismic blast 45,000 square kilometres of ocean. It's almost as big as Tasmania. And those blasts refract off the different layers of the seabed to find oil and gas reservoirs. That blast is louder than an atomic bomb. It's one of the loudest man-made noises on the planet. And it can be heard across oceans. So those in Australia are heard in Antarctica. And every single species that has been studied in our southern seas is impacted by this. Keeping in mind, not many species have yet been studied. So about 13 years ago, 2010, there was a, a mass die-off of scallops after a seismic 
blasting survey off Lake Entrance. And the fishing industry could like make a clear connection with the seismic survey. So they catalyzed research and the mm. fishing industry injected a whole bunch of money into surveying scallops, crayfish. Uh, we've got recently had octopus and zooplankton as well as a side study. Now, the research from those uh, studies showed, first of all, scallops have a dose-dependent mortality, which means the more seismic they're exposed to, the more are found to die, whether that's one pass or two passes or four passes. Not only that, with crayfish, they they lose their balance, their statusis, their human inner ear equivalent. Uh, the little hairs on them that use to detect pressure are completely obliterated. So that affects their ability to escape from predators and they're built on their escape mechanism. Mm. It's what makes them so tasty. <laughs> but as one of the most important studies for me was an assessment on zooplankton and this was only over two days and it hasn't been replicated. The researchers found that with each seismic blast, a hole in the biomass of zooplankton was opening up after it had passed through. And so all krill in that those surveys were found to be killed and zooplankton completely obliterated. So zooplankton are the foundation of marine food chains everywhere. And if you start to impact the base of these food chains, they can have very prolific impacts throughout that chain. And before that research had been done, the seismic blasting companies assumed a 10-metre impact. Oh, but the research showed that over a kilometre was being impacted and get, getting killed. 1.2 kilometres was the extent of the survey. They didn't go further than that. But everything up to 1.2 kilometres, orders so of magnitude. So maybe beyond that. Absolutely. But it hasn't been replicated. Mm. So we don't know. How pervasive is the use of this technology? Is, and is it is it a recent technology or is this happening all over the world in the ocean? It is happening everywhere. So fortunately, some countries are banning it. It's been banned in New Zealand. Uh, and it is unfortunately very used within the oil and gas industry. And that's their defence, is that we've been doing this forever mm. and there's no impacts, but they haven't been doing the research mm. to find them. Yep. So it's easy to say that there's no impacts when they're not investing in it or they're not allowing scientists on board to do the research. Mm. These vessels cost $500,000 a day to operate, a day. Wow. No scientist, no university can, no independent researcher can possibly afford access. These Scientists need to work in collaboration. And whose interest is it in to say no? Mm. Oh, it's too hard. We can't look at other technology. You know, we can't allow you on board. It's it's mm. geared. It's so heavily geared towards seismic blasting companies and has been for so long. They've gone unchecked and unchallenged. But having seen this practice for myself, having heard this practice and having had my bed shaken at night mm. with the refraction, I... And hearing from King Island, people's windowsills are shaking. It's unacceptable. And finally, there's being light shone on this industry and they can't hide over the horizon anymore. Mm. We're bringing it into people's homes through this remarkable documentary. And 
I have every hope and every confidence that with knowledge, this will this is outdated. We don't need gas anymore. We mm. absolutely can transition away from this. It makes no sense environmentally, economically, these profits go offshore or for future generations. On every level, this is intolerable. Mm. So right now, Annie, the testing, what is happening in the water right now down south? Is there anyone out there blasting? Is there a date where things are going to ramp up or begin like if you were to go down to anywhere from the Otways south, would you encounter anyone from this industry going out of any ports going out to do this? Currently, no, but they're all in the process of getting approved. So okay. right now we are waiting on whether the regulator, Nopsema, approve. There's, there's definitely there's two that are currently in the pipeline this TGS one, the biggest on the planet, and one in closer to the 12 Apostles just off the shore of the mm. surf coast there. We are awaiting. So whether that gets approved, whether that gets knocked back, it, it won't get knocked back, I can guarantee. Mm. Um, or third, whether they are forced to resubmit their proposal with major or minor amendments because we just had these proposals available to the public to be commented on. So we only had one month as mm. the public to make comments on this ridiculously enormous proposal. It was 1,400 pages and only 30 days to comment. Even as a marine scientist, that was so hard. It was mm. that I cannot believe the authors of that with scientific credentials can manipulate the findings of research so much to their agenda. Right. It's like they didn't go past the abstract, obviously very agenda-driven, but... We're seeing in that 30 days we saw over 30,000 submissions in opposition or directly needing further yeah. information mm. or complete like lack of acceptance yeah. of it. So that shows that there's a groundswell of movement against mm. these proposals. People are becoming aware and they're not, they're not okay with it. Mm. It's so fantastic that you all with Surfrider are so active on that level of um, mobilising the public and then also taking that to the MPs and mm. taking it to the political system. What comes to my mind when you were just mentioning the $500,000 a day kind of vessel fee or, you know, mm. or expense, the cost for them to do that, makes me really think that it would be great everyone who has their skis down south for riding big waves, towing in or safety, and everyone who has a boat that they like to go fish from or dive from or operate commercially could perhaps just somehow get in the way of those boats <laughs> when they're out to sea and stall that because that is a very effective strategy when it comes to caring for country and people and, and animals. Um, and we've seen that in blockades around the country where if you can stall that company for as long as you can, every day is a big loss of their most cherished item, the dollar, and then that is an opportunity, another window for the people who are shareholders or uh, part of that company to go, hmm, what's going on here? How can we just have this loss? What? Oh, there are people there who don't back what we're doing. How interesting. And so it's a really great strategy. So I would really urge anyone to think of what they have available to themselves. And if you are a surf rat like us and maybe you don't have the 
skills to be in your local chambers or go to the the politicians and speak that language use the skills and the language you have with being a water person a coastal person so i'd like the idea of that mm. to go out that we have an opportunity when these things happen even if it's at that final line like that last mm. moment and they're deploying ships or they're deploying earth moving equipment whatever it is there is still an opportunity and a great opportunity in that moment and we had yaran bundle from down south sopec group saying that she said we need boats we need people so when if it does get to that level mm-hmm. We can do that. So, yeah, I'm glad you said that. It's- what are the regulations that those vessels have to abide by in terms of human presence? Great question. So those seismic blasting vessels, they will put out a notice to mariners to vacate the area. They obviously have limited ability to move. They're, they drag streamers behind the boat that are about 7 to 10 kilometres long. So they are taking up an enormous footprint. Mm. And they can't move in any way, shape, or form efficiently. Mm. So vessels that enter that area will there's support boats around the seismic vessel that they'll be trying to get them out of the way. I've never seen it done, I personally. So I actually don't know what that looks like in terms of regulation, but my goodness, it would put a cog in the works. Mm. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, and this is mm. something that's interesting to talk about because you know, we can all get so fired up with these passions and this level of concern for an issue like this. And we can sometimes think that the angle that we're operating from and towards is going to be the most effective angle. And we should all pull pull our resources into that specific Mm -hmm. angle, that type of action. And and really, it is a, a broad, diverse range of approaches that that wins in the end and you know you've got people like wayne lynch great surfing legend from from that very coastline speaking at some of the events that have been happening around the coast on this issue and he's referring to the tipping point when it was the vietnam war and people turning out on the streets from every walk of life that changed the yeah. perception of that war and he was a famous draft dodger when he got conscripted he, he went feral and went bush as a, as protests to that he didn't want to participate wow. that and he speaks of being spat at and sworn at and and just really treated like shit mm. because of his decision mm. and his actions and then it just tipping and so I, I i like to think of those sort of stories and then the stories of like the fight for the bite and how much of a good time everyone had with their children with their grandparents turning mm. out to participate and i would like to imagine that this seismic blasting threat will galvanise and bring together our coastal communities in a similar way, though it will be different and it's always different. We could, we perhaps might like to think of what worked last time and we just apply that mm-hmm. again and that, that is actually a great thing to do, though also many other ways to do it, like riding your bike. Absolutely. I was just going to say there's <laughs> – who would have thought riding a bike would raise awareness about seismic blasting? Yeah. <laughs> but it's brought on an entirely different, very vocal demographic yeah. that are now engaged and watching and participating in this fight. And you're right, like we're holding paddle outs on the front line of this and Torquay and Warrnambool in January next year. They will be huge, both in Tasmania as well. And we will be beating the drum on this issue until we see a line through it. Mm. And you're right, whether you're a fisherman or a recreational boater, whether you love walking the beach, whether any Mm. element of the ocean speaks to you, we are 
all impacted by this, but only they will be impacted by stopping it. Mm. Yeah. We need to stand up and show up though. Yeah. And without that action, it, it will go on as a status quo as it always has. But we can stop this and I do believe we will. Mm. How can people get involved if they're far away, if they can't, you mm. know, if they're not near local waters to be able to participate in paddle outs? Absolutely. So if you're in Australia, we've got a really effective letter writing tool on the Surfrider website, so surfrider.org.au, and it takes 45 seconds and we'll send a letter to your MP and the Federal Resources Minister. She, Madeline King, is the only person that has direct influence over the regulator and can pull this off mm. in one sentence. She mm. could stop this. Mm. The next layer is education and showing this screen screening far and wide mm. like uh, educating about seismic blasting mm. we've got a petition we've got a citizens declaration if you can't show up to a paddle out donate to the amazing groups that are working on this there's so many on the front lines and that are struggling to keep the lights on mm. we've just got again 3.5 people but to see the waves that that small group can make with volunteer effort if you've got time volunteer it mm. we need every single skill set on this, whether it's photography, graphic design, whether you're an accountant, economist, whatever you need to make a business run, so too do charities. And they desperately need help. And unfortunately, it's not going to stop without rallying together. But we're seeing that. We're seeing this enormous movement and people walking out of these screenings inspired, motivated, what can I do? Like, where can I direct this energy? And we've had... 5,000 letters sent in the last couple of months through this screening. But if we can send, God, 10, 15,000, we're going to Canberra and with that kind of backing, we know that these parliamentarians, their people are speaking to them. It's being talked mm. about in these party rooms. And these decisions are top down, but it only comes through representation yeah. at the ground level from the people and from voices. And it seems like quite a localised issue to the Southern Sea, but mm. setting a, pre a legislative precedent like this could be impactful no matter where you are in the world if your coastline is being threatened by this technology. Where are the other mm -hmm. sites where seismic blasting is being used? Yeah, it's also being used recently for a process called carbon capture and storage, which is this theory, because it hasn't been proven with any kind of scientific robustness, that they capture the carbon and then they put it into these reservoirs underneath the sea and they pressurise those old wells, those depleted wells, to enhance the oil recovery so they can get the last of their oil and gas out of them. Those sites where they've proposed or implementing carbon capture and storage is one up in Europe. They are the most seismic blasted sites on the planet because you need to constantly check in those reservoirs. So it's not only oil and gas extraction, but also this carbon capture and storage, which is a complete farce. And we need to be looking at the source <laughs> more so than mm. the sink. <laughs> Europe, oh gosh, America, like a lot of coastlines that this practice is mm. continuing. However, with awareness, this is enormously shifting and Again, for decades, this has been gone on where you, people didn't know about it. The language used was really limiting. Yeah, what was the language they used to use? Acoustic something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had to 
call it an acoustic survey. Mm. I could not use the word blast mm. ever. Mm. <laughs> and we weren't allowed to say air gun. It was called the source. And <laughs> oh, it's a joke, isn't it? The source. The source. Wow. Yeah. That's so the source trippy. was emitting an acoustic yeah. signal. Mm. It, the language is powerful and these groups are very well rehearsed in making sure that they dilute attention and mm. fear and inflammation. Mm. I couldn't talk about where I was going on these boats or what I was even flying to when I was flying to them, where, what I'd just done, what I'd seen. You couldn't take video or photo out there. And to think back now what I witnessed with you know a fin whale one of the biggest whales on the planet popping up right next to the vessel and the damage has been done. Like that's the first time I saw it, mm. let alone the many whales that you see that don't pass the criteria for a shutdown. You only shut down within 500 metres of the vessel. But these blasts are travelling across these oceans, mm. deafening and masking whale calls, incredibly important for their communication, navigation, feeding. We haven't talked about the impact on marine mammals yet. Absolutely. So only marine mammals have that mitigation in, pro, in, in place, so mm. as a marine mammal observer, but again, only whales. So in very rare circumstances, you'd get a turtle, like they'd mitigate for turtles, but good luck spotting mm. a turtle from 500 metres away. Mm. And the environmental conditions you need to see, either a whale or a turtle, like you can only see what's on the surface, nothing underneath. You can't see behind you. There's only ever one of you on shift. And at night, mm. who, yeah. who can see then? Yeah. No one. And so this is designed and completely well, well designed for the industry to continue its practice. It's, it's flawed on every level and there is no attempt to improve these practices. They're, they're void of environmental referrals from the EPBC Act. It's it's horrific that there is so much power that has been placed on these companies and their decision-making skills, but that that's changing now. Mm. I can imagine some people are listening and a sceptical part of their brain is mm. going, well, mm. we all use oil and gas, mm -hmm. so is there some value in continuing to search for it, to, you know, to Great supplement question. our usage, what else are we going to do? Right. How do we transition mm. away from using these substances? Really important question and really important conversation. We do all use oil and gas. It's in our clothes. It's in how we feed ourselves. It's how we transport. Just because it is the way things are right now should not deter us from wanting to have better use of shared resources, less impactful processes and striving to make change. If we're not, we're not frozen in time, we can adapt. I've seen it. We, we've seen it just in our lifetimes. There's huge shifts in the right direction. But you're right. At the moment, we have a broken system and I can't get from A to B sometimes without flying. And a lot of people remain silent because they don't want to be called a hypocrite. And so they don't want to speak out and put their neck out. Like it is a means to an end sometimes. If the benefit of jumping on that plane, driving that car outweighs the cost, it's okay. Mm. This, this is a system where mm. we need a change. But that shouldn't be enough to deter us from demanding change. And where we can make an impact individually, whether it's, you know, changing who you bank with or where your super is, because a lot of those 
are investing in these oil and gas mm-hmm. companies right now, whether it's, again, like choosing a different mode of transport or do I really need to go across the planet or can I offset that in a meaningful way? There's a lot of greenwashing these days. But when I look at the conversation around especially Australia and this gas-led recovery that is so pushed by these very effective lobby groups, 80% of the gas we extract here in Australia goes offshore and 95% of the major oil and gas companies in Australia are foreignly owned. So that money is not staying in Australia. Mm. The taxes and royalties are nil, almost, almost nil for most. There is, again, no no way that this makes sense Mm. on any level. Yes, we use it, but we need to be transitioning out. And because we use it, shouldn't be a reason for us not to. Mm. This is a bit of a tangent. There's been some rumor amongst people we know about the push for wind energy Mm. and Mm. wind infrastructure. And I I feel like there are misconceptions around this technology being used Mm. for the implementation of wind infrastructure Is that true? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. And my uh, focus and energy has been so targeted on the oil and gas industry and this seismic blasting because the impacts are greater Mm. than the proposals in the wind development space. And this is an important conversation. For example, there is seabed assessments to do wind farm developments those the depth of those assessments are between like tens of meters to maximum hundreds of meters maximum seismic blasting for oil and gas is 20 kilometers deep so the scale wow. of impact yeah. noise like the decibel level the impact to marine systems is completely different and look what they're searching for it's a fossil fuel that will drive further climate degradation yeah whereas we do need desperately these transitions Mm. and different sources of energy so currently for me personally and i can only speak from a personal i understand no matter what we do in the ocean scape there's going to be impacts Mm. with development Mm. but currently seismic blasting and the oil and gas industry impacts far outweigh the wind farm developments Mm. so i choose to pick my battles here and and honestly I, I haven't seen a proposal yet from a wind farm development they're still years away we don't know what the environmental impacts are so i can't mm. provide mm. A, an informed response to many of these many of these comments and in saying that a lot of misinformation is currently being spread in the uh, offshore wind development space driven by the oil and gas industry mm. there is a huge lobby group and their concern for marine mammals which is just yep, absolutely in the worst it's the way first, mm. it's the first time i've heard them care about marine mammals mm. is in offshore wind that they're killing the whales and please show me any any research mm. that hasn't been funded by the oil and gas industry that mm. shows me that i i have not seen that and it, i cannot theorize how that would be so there is operational noise and there is a, a zone, a very spatially limited zone that there is mm. operational noise. Mm-hmm. But again, in comparison to seismic mm. blasting for at the oil and gas level, mm. pff, incomparable. Yeah. Um, and I need to sh- r- like allocate my resources and energy and skill set to, to that industry because 
it far outweighs that of wind. Mm. It's an important nuance in the conversation because we are animals. We impact our environment. We change the world that we live in. That's what it means to live within an ecosystem. But there's scale and there's breadth and depth that's worth looking at in detail to compare, like like you said. Absolutely. And there can be mutually beneficial relationships too. So <laughs> one of the things I've been thinking about while riding out here is what does it mean to reduce your impact? So my bike, there is an impact to create that. But after 700, I did the calculation, 700 kilometres, it's offset. So the the carbon required to make that is offset after I don't drive it, I ride 700 k's. But you're absolutely right, there's, there's impacts. Please stay tuned while we take a quick break to acknowledge the folks who help make our podcast possible. If the first 50 years were an experiment. To prove that a business could be responsible and successful. Turns out it's not just possible, it's profitable. So what's next? What's next is simple. It's human-powered, and it's finding the joy in doing difficult things. What's next is turning capitalism on its head and putting all our money where our mouth is. What's next is unstoppable. Thanks to Patagonia for their continued support this season and for prioritizing purpose over profit to protect our wondrous planet, our only home. Sanook has been advocating for a more playful and inclusive surfing culture for more than two decades while crafting some of the comfiest footwear around. Thanks for your support, Sanook, and for encouraging water people around the globe to protect their happy places. Learn more about Sanook's partnership with the Surfrider Foundation at sanook.com. I feel like right now there's this interest in the, especially the surfing world of extracting ourselves from extractive industries, um, specifically the petrochemical industry, and doing that wherever we can, mm -hmm. considering our addiction to surfing, our fiendish addiction to surfing, <laughs> and that we're not going <laughs> to give it up. And so what can we give up? And that is this relationship, this long and dark relationship to petrochemicals where we see when surfing was adopted by Californians from Hawaiian Californian interaction you know 100 years ago it just so happened that most of the young kids who picked up surfing in Southern California were the children of aeronautics and military industrial complex employees so <laughs> There was Bob Simmons who created twin fins and all these amazing yeah. surfboards that was designing planes for the military. And he and boats and all kinds of people in Southern California. Wetsuits too. Wetsuits especially. Technology. And then we look at our dependence on weather forecasting technology that all comes from mm. the military complex out of there. And so we have this long history as surfers, as divers mm. as well, um, mm. sailors too, I'm sure, fishers that have this real dependency on petrochemical use mm -hmm. and so right now what is hopefully redeeming and exciting about the surfing organism is that we have two surfers who have been on this podcast who created the documentary the big sea about uh, neoprene and the way neoprene is made and where it comes from in cancer alley in louisiana in america and that we have other alternatives to mm -hmm 
neoprene mm-hmm. for us to wrap ourselves up and be warm while we surf in all of these places where we all seem to have a real draw to Arctic circles and Southern oceans and whatnot. Great surf. So that is a really wonderful thing that is starting to grow in the surfing organism and that'll stretch out to other areas. Surfing is is rather influential, I would like to say, in popular culture. When things happen surfing, they can really trickle out to other areas. And then we look at surfboards. There's, there's a lot of work to be done there, but there are people pursuing ways mm. to get out of that um, dependence on that technology. So I think this comes back to what we were just talking about, about choosing what it is you focus on, understanding that within certain systems the, the options mm. are somewhat limited and we do our best with what we can do. When you think about your rides and your bike and I love what you just said about how when you have you get on your bike, you pedal 700 k's and, you know, that offsets the work that was done to construct your bike. Moving forward, how do you feel you can prioritise those sort of decisions? Mm. Like, mm. you know, you obviously have the option of food. It's something we do every day. You know, there's 20-odd thousand kilometres attached to every food basket coming out of shops in, in Australia what does your priority system look mm. like when you think mm. about, yeah, just that balance of your daily life and, and decisions you can make in your personal circle? I love this question and I've thought so much about this out here because, again, you don't want to just live in your tiny little I, – I could so happily do that <laughs> out in, out in Woof Woof and just surf and ride and not try and tackle this really big complex issue – And it's the elephant in the room, like travel, diet in the age of climate change. Like what is the Mm. right answer? And fortunately, we're seeing remarkable research in this space to help us guide our decision-making process. Mm. So recently I had to travel down to a Patagonia event in Torquay and I had this utter moral dilemma of I've just ridden from there. How do I get back there? And I couldn't ride back because I couldn't make the events in time. So my layering of thinking, for example, was, okay, can I get an electric vehicle from here? That's probably the the easiest in terms of it was still a big drive, but doable. Unfortunately, I couldn't. Oh, no, the first layer was the train. I tried to get the train first, but they're all booked out. It's a very last minute trip. So the train, then the EV came into question whether I could get one and get mm. to and fro between events quick enough. Couldn't do that either. I can't remember why. I think it was expense and limited funds. And then third was offsetting the flight and an offset option that I approved of. And so that's the choice mm. I took to attend the event. But above all is do I really need to be there? Is And having a really good, honest look at the answer there because often impact won't outweigh, the positive impact won't outweigh the the negative. But in this case, to share this message, again, with a broken system, I my values judgment was, yes, this message, while it's getting so momentous, I need to help share this message. And, yes, I am utilising fossil fuels to stop fossil fuel usage. Mm. Mm. There's inherent hypocrisy in this. Mm. But that conversation is important to have Mm. because without it, we're like how vulnerable is this to be sharing that like, yes, I Mm. I wholeheartedly 
understand that there's no perfect way through this. Mm. And that's where we all are. We're all in this. There's no perfect panacea mm. as we transition to mm. a better way. Mm. And when I look forward, is it just one big flight per year? Because, gosh, right now with the demands of attendance at events around the nation, working at, in a national branch, we, like I could do 40, 50 flights a, a year to attend and share this message. But no, I will do my absolute best to minimise wherever possible. Mm -hmm. I think this trip in particular was eight flights I was going to need to take. Mm. So zero, but then one surprise one for an yeah. event. And then diet, you've got three times a day. You mm. can really reduce and localise, eat healthy and fuel your body and gosh, like there's so many things that resonate from an unhealthy lifestyle and the cost that that will have mm. later in life. But I, I don't have a perfect answer for you. And I think that's part of why we need to be talking about mm. this. Mm. And right now, that's being avoided. Mm. I can't find a book on it. I've been looking for a book on travel in the age of climate change because that's a big, big one. Mm. It's an important conversation, especially as water people who love to experience the world. We love to adventure. It is baked into mm. what it means to be a surfer in many ways, historically anyway. So what tool do you use to offset your mm. travel? And do you think travel, even for the sole purpose of adventure and exploration and personal enrichment, is validated. Mm, great question again with perspective. I remember, you know, growing up in Tasmania, you're surrounded by old growth forests and beautiful, abundant landscapes. And I thought the whole world was like that. Little did I know, only after traveling, that what we have there is so precious, not just Tasmania, but throughout Australia, we have so many unique, rare, endemic, important, globally significant ecosystems. But you don't know that until you leave and and then you come back and then you want to fight for it because it's not everywhere. We're just so, so lucky. Mm. So there is value in travel. But, gosh, if you can slow down that travel, if you can – oh, I'm, I'm hoping to sail between everywhere mm. now. I love sailing. So obviously pairing mm. that in would be the ideal. If anyone has a yacht, <laughs> hit me up. <laughs> um, to ride my bike wherever possible because mm. – Again, I just had the most ridiculous time when I could have been flying above it all mm. and disconnected from it yeah. all. If you can slow your travel down, you are not only going to have a way better time mm. and it's not, for, it's not everyone's option. Some people are in a rush. They don't have that choice. But, again, why? Sometimes mm. we need to go back to mm. why are we in a rush? Is it real? Is mm. that an illusion? Is an often... It's by design. Mm. You know, we, we're trying to squeeze so much into such a short time and that's societally, culturally encouraged and celebrated, mm. you know, this. Mm. Uh, we think a lot about what we lose by giving up old technologies, but also there's a lot to gain, like you were talking about, by slowing mm. down, by changing a mode of travel that allows you to embed and connect with community and with place yeah. more deeply. Oh, and what a place to connect with, mm. you know, yeah. like if, if you're traveling for experience, you know, it's about the journey again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've loved the destinations, but my goodness, the journey has been where I've had my profoundly 
impactful, life-changing moments. Mm. And to be at the final destination now and to look back and reflect on the last two months and my body being completely adapted for this remark. Like I've just fueled on endorphins all day. <laughs> like it is the most incredible way to live, but that's a choice and I needed to fight for it. Like I needed to ask for this. It wasn't going to mm. happen by default. Mm. We have to be creative and the more minds that are applying themselves to solutions here or different ways of, of clothing ourselves mm. or different ways of like we are remarkably creative, remarkably resourceful. And with with boundaries of choices, like if you just say no to the job, to the source of income, the the type of product, the neoprene, yes, it might be a bit more challenging to begin with or it could also be way, way better. Mm. And I love boundaries. I love people with boundaries. Mm. If someone comes to me and they say or ask, can we do it better? What a fantastic question. Not being passive and not being a passenger in in this because right now everything's geared for convenience and mm. speed. Well, it's, it's, it couldn't be crazier. Mm, yeah. You Speaking, s- sorry, so, but I have to. I, sorry, I have to know no, what you used. <laughs> you have to tell us what you approved as an offset for oh. the carbon from your flight. Sorry, missed that one. I chose a mangrove. I had the option of like a $3 offset on my flight via the, you know, standardized flight option, mm-hmm. or I think it was $87. And I, I'll get you the, the company because okay. it was- It wasn't Sea Trees, was it? Oh, I don't think so. Okay. I, I'll find you it. Okay. I did no so worries. much I'll put it in the show notes. backlog okay. and I found someone that did it for a job. So I'll- Awesome. Mm. People, I'm notes. sure lots of people will yeah, want to know definitely. what the- non-greenwashed Oof, approved so like marine biologist approved way of offsetting your flights is. Mm. please let me get that too yeah so we're speaking about moving slowly and you know the benefits of riding your bike on a long journey like you've just completed though you have some records <laughs> that speak to going very fast world records in fact what is the deal and what are you about to do in the next few days that relates to speed of that oh ma- of goodness. that kind yeah so again those whole limiting beliefs and shaking rattle like now i rock the boat intentionally in intrinsically extrinsically because so many of those limitations whether they're lifestyle whether they're conceptualize inherited operating systems they're not real and while out on these roads and undertaking these experiences what i have no idea if i can do them like you really you're not honestly are you training beforehand i did a little bit before this one new zealand for example i'd never ridden on a road and i decided to ride tip to tip so the first day was my first day on a road ever and Every day you're oh, like, ho- hold on, sorry. Pass while the little puppy. Dave, that's definitely Dave's style. Dive in, like deep end. Let's go, like figure it out on the fly. I'm like excited about the talk of that. I mm. don't want to like get yeah. too off. <laughs> I, um, I've had a couple adventures, very much along a similar line of moving slowly, with a big group of friends on little Hobie kayak. Trimarans, yeah, trimaran ones where we've done some long trips in California and Australia. And I did one paddle on the west coast of New Zealand, North Island, New Zealand, around seabed mining. So there's a seabed mining threat, and there was a real rallying of community to stop that and to also seek 
greater protection for the Maui's dolphin, the Papatau dolphin, the smallest yeah. dolphin in the yep. world, yeah, uh, down to fifty individuals at that point. And so I kind of I wanted to do a solo mission and yep. just paddle, yeah, but also join up with locals and paddle that stretch of coast. And I wanted to do that because I felt like the the slow moving way of ensuring that by literally moving mm. by the force of my own arms each day, I would come in and pretty much traverse every grain of sand of that coast that was un- under threat and then hang with locals in a way where we were sort of more shoulder to shoulder. I was like, oh, I just, I yeah. felt how strong your waters are here. Yes. I felt how powerful this coastline is. I've seen how deforested it is and New Zealand is tragically deforested. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, at the end of the trip, I knew that place in a way now that it will never leave me it is so intimate and really fun and it also gave me a position of strength and not authority but strength to be able to speak for that place advocate and and really from Mm. direct experience Mm. and if someone was to contest the nature of that place and say from the industry who was threatening it oh no those waters are fine you know it's not that kind of um uh, tumultuous, turbulent coastline or whatever, I could directly speak to the mm-hmm. nature of that place. And anyway, it was just an incredible way to move through country and to actually spend relaxed time with people and have all those silly little conversations you have between <laughs> surfs or cups of tea or a barbie or whatever, mm-hmm. and, but that aren't silly at all. They're just, they're, they really last and they're very human and humanizing. The real joy for me in that too were those high octane moments, probably a shit term to use actually, <laughs> but those high speed moments, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I loved those thrilling moments as much as I loved the calm cruising moments where you're just coasting. Mm-hmm. So what is the deal with that part of you <laughs> where you coast and you cruise and then you bomb hills Oof, and you <laughs> have you have obviously a, a need for speed i think surfers get this because we chase that you know it's such a thrill and picking up a bike like i love the intensity and it's all consuming you cannot think about anything else when you're bombing down a hill and part of the ride in new zealand is Again, breaking down these self-limiting beliefs and time and time again, you're looking at the next like alpine range thinking, I've got to go over that. And you, I was towing a surfboard with a wetsuit that I just towed through a river, so it's five kilos heavier. <laughs> like those kind of experiences, you're like, oh, no, I forgot. Like, <laughs> and dragging that through backcountry gravel roads, just gathering dust and out there alone, and you just want to shake people. Like, where are you all? I'm the only one to witness this kind of stuff. But you put yourself in those situations through like a bit of blind confidence and the sense for wanting to live, truly live. And again, like I could have just flown over the top of it, but that mentality of those break, like breaking down those barriers, mostly the mental ones and what can't I do? Mm. Like let's test it. And the ultimate one for me was like a world record. And- like I, the doubt that you overcome while preparing mentally for that. You, I did it a hundred times mentally before even getting to that start line. And interestingly, 
when you step at that start line, for me, and I don't know if this is advisable, it was you see it through or you break your body doing it. There's no quitting. Quitting is not on the table. And that mentality has been fully reinforced in the last few years. Like that is how I'm choosing to attack what I do now. Mm. Like there and whatever bar or challenge or goal, whatever you want to call it, you put in place, like that the limit of what you can do, it just keeps moving. And that was one of the ultimate tests of what can it's not so much your body, but what can your mind do? And um like I, I attempted it was a the most descending on a mountain bike in 24 hours. And so there was no female record. So I was like, oh, this is an easy one. I'll just get go get that. There was a minimum requirement. So that was oh, 30,000 metres descending, which was 72 laps of a mountain that I chose to do it on. Wow. Cra- crazy. I started at 8 p.m. because I wanted to get the night done first to be fresh. But I uh, unbelievably got the female record in 13 hours. And I was like, I've still got a few hours up my sleeve. Let's go for the men's. And so I started chasing the men's record. And like the questions of why am I doing this? Like 80 laps deep. You ask some hard-hitting questions and the experiences you go through in a challenge like this is like five years of living, all condensed into 24 hours. Like the highest highs, the lowest lows, the mm. doubt, the breaking through what you thought was possible, the connection, the bonds, the physical experience, the mental experience, and just kept going alone at, towards the end because everyone else fried. And um, <laughs> like, fair enough, like yeah. I had been training, but no one else had. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I got the men's record after 18 hours and 54 minutes and I did a few more laps to make 100 laps but then in the last two hours the heavens had opened up and it was pouring rain (laughs) and I because you're so fatigued your balance is so compromised and this was like a downhill record on a downhill track. Can you sorry can you talk us through I'm not familiar with mountain biking so much so you have a a track Mm -hmm. there's downhill but there's uphill too so you're having to ride uphill or are you getting an assist on the uphill I got an assist so I chose an area with a chairlift and fortunately Coronet Peak where I did it they sped the chairlift up so I did all my calculations off a slower lift they put it to a hundred percent for me and so that's why I was getting it done so much quicker than I calculated and so assisted up so I get four minutes of break and then you're riding back down again yeah but gosh I I'll never forget like looking up at the stars having your own private bike park and chairlift with a bunch <laughs> of mates and yeah, why would you stop? this is crazy yeah, like going. I was just like <laughs> laughing at absolutely mind-blowing experience mm. that but it's just based on what you crazy ideas you think up and why not and the thing is when you're out there doing things like that the ideas keep coming. And the next idea, I've already got so many in my the backlog right now that I've got in the pipeline. But gosh, next on the list is, yeah, to do a, another record because I love the challenge. I just mm. love it. And it's not, it's not for anyone else, but mm. I love that I put limits on myself. And they're all, again, old inherited jargon that, 
aren't real and breaking through those and that way of doing it through a kind of recognized way is it just gives me a something to like measure it by um so I can just kind of get into my little phase and meditate through it it's phenomenally I I can't articulate Mm. the emotion that comes through experiences like that and there's literally like if you heard myself talk it's so optimistic it's like it's um so good and especially after an experience for example like this ride i get to operate in a profoundly positive optimistic energized phenomenal environment and i'm so protective of that and i get into different communities and cultures along the way in australia there's so many different cultures across the the span i recognize that most people are living in quite restricted structures like nine to five Mm. and a lot of people don't believe that they can make change with their voice or their actions and so it's really such a contrast going from this mindset and environment that you intentionally create like that's not Mm. by accident it's very intentional Mm. the language I use. I was just reading Mm. about a parent whose child was complaining a lot. And so this parent was thinking about how do I get my child to complain less? And they decided to explain to the child that our brains are full of these bridges, neural pathways. And the more you do a behavior, the stronger the bridges get. And when you don't behave in a certain way, like you're not being very grateful, you're not looking at the positive side of things, those bridges, those pathways get broken and they break down. And so what I hear in you is you are just building up these neural pathways of positivity. Sorry, I broke away from the I know. <laughs> the example of the parent and the child. So the parent was saying, look, my precious child, let's try to practice gratitude. Mm-hmm. You ha- you've built up this habit for complaining. And so your brain is just going to keep going down that pathway. Let's try to shift it. Let's try to incorporate, you know, when you go to complain, instead, say something positive, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Let's build a new bridge. And it's, we, I think we've got to be so gentle with ourselves in this because it's like a reptilian default of ours. Our brain is absolute Teflon for like slippery stuff for positive experiences and positive interactions, but it is Velcro for negative because that's a survival instinct. Mm. So with that inbuilt default, it it needs to be intentional and almost a a practice, an Mm. exercise. And while out there, even a couple of days ago in torrential rain, I found myself having that internal talk of like, this is pretty hard. Like I had drowned my phone, so I had no navigation anymore. I had no connection or safety through getting in touch with people. I'd almost been hit by a car at that stage because I'd locked up and couldn't stop in time on the greasy roads. And everything that could go wrong did go wrong. But in that, the flip of the narrative was what an adventure this is or I've got to really earn this. Like, it's Mm. not easy. And this is what I came here for. Like, I came here to live. And this is living. Like, this is memorable. Some of those, (laughs) like, stretches of road where you got your head down, like, I've I've just, it's all a blur. But I will never forget that. And (laughs) time and time again, some of the hardest experiences are the biggest opportunities to learn and to take forward. And 
what you can do with the neurological wiring there. Like that was a perfect flip. Like you, the self-awareness. And don't get me wrong, like it's not like I'm walking around smiling all day. It's like it's not toxic positivity, but there's so much choice in how you navigate or narrate things that are often so out of your control. Mm. But that's something you can 100% control mm. is is that internal dialogue. And sometimes it's a tough shift and sometimes I can't. Like mm. some days are just hard and that's okay too. But Do you wake up on a Velcro day and just go, I'm not getting on my bike. I'm just going to stick to this sticky Velcro negativity and have like a full, mm. Mm. you know, like physical blah, mental blah. Honestly, yeah, some yeah. days, like, and that's okay. Great. Like, to feel it and exactly. it is what it is. Yeah. Like, that doesn't define you. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not just one behaviour or one attitude. Yeah. And it's it's kind of like I heard this brilliant analogy of we don't look at a tree and think all year round it should have, like, fruit and leaves on it. Like, we're totally understanding that it has seasons. And whether that's in a day or over a period of time, it's okay. Mm. And I think having that gentle acceptance and then if you can have that shift, God, you you get better at it, mm. you get stronger at it. And then fortunately for me, strengthening that that self-belief, no matter what comes in through whether and often it's not my voice, it's someone else's voice that's criticizing me or judging me or like so interesting if you listen to the narrative often mm. it's a cultural one mm. and it's learnt and you can unlearn it mm. <laughs> so yeah. why now in your life why take on these big physical challenges now in your life you're in your early 30s mm-hmm. yeah what about right now is driving you toward world records and stretching mm. your physical capacity really good question i i have it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, and is, is there a limit? Did you have parents who modeled adventure for you? My parents have always been so supportive. Like, and I'm like, my mum was a breadwinner. And I remember going out into the world where dad was to stay at home and looked after us and worked remotely going, oh, well, this is a different people often have different roles. And and then those getting projected on me, especially in the sailing world. I remember jumping on a boat and someone being like, this is my favourite food. I was like, oh, that's very Good presumptuous. Good, mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> I think having such supportive parents that I don't have an interaction where they don't tell me that I'm loved and valued and cared for, I have such a strong support network and I have the closest knit group of friends that, and we just build each other up and that's intentional that we have a very high standard of care and love and I don't have time for anything else and I have such a remarkable bar and I one hold myself and others to that so in in a compassionate loving way like support is just key and community is key but I think I've always been drawn to and resonated with these remote crazy challenging environments like studying Antarctic sciences and buying a yacht overseas Mm. and now full immersion into the bike world and a few big ideas that why not, you know, like it's there and the option opportunities there. Please, please. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote, 
You can't take back the time you sit watching TV or scrolling through Facebook, instead of in the sun, in the arms of the one you love, or under the starriest skies. This very moment is your life. You only have one. When you go to leave this world, what will have filled your heart, moved you, or made you passionate beyond belief? For me, it's working on a cause beyond myself, wholehearted kindness, riding my bike, feeling small and humbled by nature, and appreciating every minute of it. I want to watch the sunrise, laugh until I cry, continue to challenge myself to the point of breaking, and hopefully use everything I learn along the way to make this world a better place. The most rewarding experiences I've had have been the result of intense leaps of faith that some people told me not to, but felt right anyway. Would you rather go home having tried or have to die unfulfilled? I'm not scared of trying and failing, but I'm afraid of living a life with only half my heart. <laughs> so beautiful. Thank you. Mm. So beautiful. I think what these experiences give you is that huge perspective and those moments that are so difficult to recreate, but by putting yourselves on that mountaintop or out on that break and that clarity comes so impactfully deep and then you can write something like that without without hesitation without a backspace and that's why I do what I do this ride for example when I bought a yacht when I went to New Zealand I could count on one hand on a couple of fingers people that encouraged me to do it and led with enthusiasm. Almost the other 99% of people told me their fears and told me, gave me a warning time and time and time again with all of these experiences. And I understand it comes from a remarkably caring, compassionate place where they want the best for you, but it's often a projection of fear and often out of proportion. And I really, truly believe jumping in, doing a bit of background research so you're not fully in the dark, but jumping in with both feet, you learn and we are remarkably capable and people will gravitate to you. It's so important to have that courage and I couldn't do what I do now without having taken those big jumps and hoping for the best and honestly, like I don't want to get too woo-woo, but you will be caught always, every time. I've had so many exceptional experiences and people are good and caring and I wholeheartedly believe that. I've seen that, I've experienced that firsthand this entire trip. I can't encourage others enough to just jump in and have a go. Thanks so much for listening with us today. If you like what you heard, please consider sharing an episode with a friend. Our editor this season is the multi-talented Ben Alexander. The podcast soundtrack was composed by Shannon Sol Carroll with additional tunes by Dave and Ben. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram where we're at What Are People Podcasts and you can subscribe to our very infrequent newsletter <laughs> to get book recommendations, questions we're pondering, behind the scenes glimpses into recording the podcast and more via our website, waterpeoplepodcast.com.